Rahman Rahim Allah We are at the end of Surah Al Fatah, Surah number 48, Ayah number 29. Audhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajim, Bismillahi Rahman Rahim. Muhammad Rasulullah, Waladina Ma'u, Shiddah Al Kafari Rahama, Bainahum. تراهم ركعا سجدا يبتغون فضلا من الله ورضوانا. We've discussed this ayah up to here that Muhammad is the Rasul of Allah and he has people with him. Those who are with him, they're very strict in matters of kufr and against those who don't believe in Allah and the Rasul, and they're very accommodating, compassionate amongst themselves. You will see them constantly in ruku', and you will see them constantly in sujood, that they behave appropriately in society, and they behave appropriately in privacy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they give people their due and they give Allah his due. So now they are the most comprehensive, holistic representation of the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the Sahaba, they represent the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the way they represent is by by being strict and firm in matters of aqidah, in matters of Islamic issues, and being very accommodating in matters of understanding that all human beings are not perfect. And then they're very dedicated, devoted to Allah himself, which is translated in salat. If you say you're dedicated to Allah, then you must show yourself you're dedicated by manifesting your ibadah in privacy. Public is one thing that you do salat in jama'ah to show yourself and others that you're not a munafiq, but in privacy your sincerity comes out uh, to you. Then there's no one there looking, no one's listening, but there you are standing and bowing down and prostrating to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the reason why they do this is يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِّنَ اللَّهِ That they're seeking Allah's fadl or they're seeking fadl from Allah, His grace, His bounty, and further blessings, and also uh, His good pleasure, His rida, which is huge for those who know. Then the visual, physical effect of their personality and their persons is very apparent. Uh, so the key to Islam is that Islam has to be apparent. It cannot be hidden. That's the key. And the amount of transparency now will become obvious on their faces that the sincerity and the dedication that the Sahaba have towards Allah and the Rasul, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
is apparent on their faces. So, Simahum. Okay. Their distinguishing marks, Sima. Their distinguishing marks and features are on their faces. When you look at somebody's face, you get a window into what that person might be like inside. Whether he's happy, whether he's distressed, whether he's in a good mood or whether he's in not a good mood, that will become apparent, especially in the face and also body language. The face is the most important place to look at. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they have a distinguishing, distinct mark, insignia almost, like a brand. So what is the brand of the Sahaba? That you will see the, the effects of their sajda on their faces. That when you look at them, you see, oh, uh, this one has been in sajda. So that is very distinguishing, meaning that their Islam is on their faces. Not just in their hearts, but also in their physical appearance, you can see that this person is different from other people. And that is how you see the mission of the Prophet has been accomplished by you know, formulating, forging, creating a whole community of human beings uh, who can represent the Rasul. So the mission of the Prophet is to create a group of people in his image. Allah creates Adam in his image. Prophets create their communities in their images. So here the Prophet has been given this endorsement that you have created a whole community in your image and then your mission is complete. Because once you have formed a group of people who know you, understand you, and do what you do, then if you leave, they will continue to do what you do. And that is called succession. That's called khilafa. And so on. So here we see that the Sahaba, as a whole, as a community, their inner being and their outer being is the same. They're transparent. There's no nifaq in them. There's no hypocrisy in them. You cannot doubt their loyalty to the Rasul and you cannot doubt their loyalty to Islam. And that is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has represented them in wahi. Meaning this is not just something that the Qur'an is mentioned, this is historical, meaning Allah has mentioned this in previous revelations. This is their likeness and uh, similitude, if you want, to a parable in other books, previous books like the Torah. So the Torah obviously has predictions of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. But more than that, it also has descriptions of the people with him, meaning the Sahaba. And that's huge. One is the Prophet is mentioned, which you can research everywhere if you want. That Torah does mention the Prophet But then to say that his companions are also mentioned and described, that is now a testimony for the Sahaba. And that they have been previously uh, recorded. 
in other divine books and revelation and so on. Umar radiallahu anhu, when he went to receive the keys of Jerusalem and Baytul Maqdis, the rabbis came outside of the gate and handed over the keys without any fight. So Umar said, how do you know I'm Umar? Because I'm not riding the donkey, my slave's riding the donkey. So they said, it's written in our books that the person who will conquer Jerusalem will have his slave riding the donkey. So you're Omar, and he's your slave. Written in their books. Which is huge, phenomenal. But yet we have a group of people who are so stubborn they won't appreciate anything of the Sahara. So this is the parable, the example in the Torah, that the Torah highlights these features of the companions of the Prophet. So you can imagine what the Torah highlights about the Prophet. And is also that their parable is also in the Injil, the book revealed to Isa, that the Sahaba mentioned in the books of the Banu Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the Banu Israel know the Prophet, as the Quran says previously. They know him, the Prophet, as they know their own sons. But here we are now describing how the Sahaba are mentioned in previous books, the Torah, and now the Injil. So Isa obviously came as a prelude to the Prophet, and he said that. But then he also informed his community of the Sahaba that the Sahaba will be there. So in order for Islam to succeed and be a global civilization, you need to uh, identify who the Nabi is and who is well, who are his followers. Right? So in the story of Abu Sufyan going to Hirakal, uh, for trade, uh, Hirakal, who was there with the Byzantines, asked him a few questions as he knew that this one came from Makkah. So Abu Sufyan at that time was not a Muslim. So one of the questions the Byzantine ruler asked was that, describe his companions to me. Mm. There's hadith there in Bukhari and other places. So now Hirakal is asking his companions because rulers know that you don't rule just by yourself. You rule as a group. You rule as an assembly. You rule as a cabinet. You rule as a parliament. So I want to know who their advisors are, who, who are the advisors and followers of this Nabi. And so, so Abu Sufyan, in a very just way, describes the loyalty and the passion of the Prophet, وسلم, in which he says that if he makes wudu, they will scramble with each other and race to collect the leftover wudu water. Um, so Hirakal obviously being a Christian, a very knowledgeable Christian, he understood that these are the descriptions of the Sahaba in the Injil. He doesn't say that, but it is very obvious. And I was confirmed by this ayah, this part of the ayah, that their parable 
in the Injil is Kazarin Akhraja Shatahu. It's like a plant. It's like the seed of a plant. It's like a plant in itself. Akhraja Shatahu that brings forth its shoot. Fazarahu then it strengthens the shoot and the bark. Fastaghlala. Okay, then it becomes strong and thick and resilient and resolute. Uh, and it stands on its own stems, and meaning that nothing can shake or break this plant uh, that believes in Allah and Tawheed and believes in the Rasul. It is upright. And it is carefully planted in such a way that it cannot be uh, uprooted by the environment, by the elements, and so on. What does this do to the onlooker? It pleases and it amazes the people who cultivate and farm and they do agriculture. So those people are amazed by the strength and the durability and the growth of this plant. Ultimately, this will enrage the kuffar. You mean they will be amazed at the strength and the resilience of those who follow the Prophet Muhammad uh, this shows how Muslims should participate in mainstream discussion as upright, resolute, firm, resilient, and shakeable people who represent the Prophet that they should not shy away from saying that. That's the meaning here for the reader of the Quran, that if you want to be with the Prophet, then you must do this. If you don't do this, you're not with the Prophet. And if you're not with the Prophet, you never know where you'll be on the Day of Judgment. Hmm? Yeah, so that's now the proof in the pudding. That the early companions of the Prophet and all the Sahaba and early Muslims were of this nature. That they will be strict in their understanding and discipline of Islam. They will be accommodating uh, yeah, each other. They would be in ruku and sujood. They would be engaged in ibadah, private ibadah. And they would be seeking Allah's fadl and so on. And they would be like a stalk. They would be like a tree or trunk of a, a tree, a plant that is unshakable. And it cannot be uprooted that they stand firm and they stand on their own. They don't need crutches of other civilizations to show people who they are and what they can do. That's how you define Islam. Yeah, so they're not hypocrites and so on. So this description of those who are with the Prophet is a primary description of the Sahaba, which is conclusive. You can't deny that in any way, shape or form. But it's also for the Tabi'een who follow the Sahaba. The Tabi'een are those who follow. They are this description also. And that's how formidable this Ummah was. So when you read the great stories of the early Sahaba, the Tabi'een, and the great awliya, and the ulama, we see that they were all engaged in this type of industry. 
and in this type of collective work and in this type of private uh, attachment to Allah. Mm-hmm. So their social work was indisputable, but their private ibadah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was also indisputable. And that is what the modern Muslim needs to realize, that you cannot do anything for Islam unless you know how to seek madad and help from Allah through your ibadah. Ibadah has to be 50% of your identity. All the great ulama, they prayed. You hear the great stories of the Tabi'een and Abu Hanifa, how many years he prayed to Hajjad with the wudu of Isha. You see all the way how Imam Shafi prayed, how Imam Malik prayed, and how Imam Ahmad prayed, and they prayed so much that Imam Ahmad saw Allah in a dream more than a hundred times. How do you get to that rank that you're praying along with the social work you do in the day? Abu Yusuf would pray nawafil like crazy, even though he was a judge. But he didn't care. This is your Islam defines who you are and what you do. So all the great uh, people who did work <clears throat> and uh, you will see that in the day they're in the battlefield at night uh, they're standing praying in front of Allah subhanahu so personal private engagement and public engagement has to be the same the same wavelength you cannot be a munafiq so those of you uh, who want to do ilm mashallah they should also think of their ibadah at least in Ramadan as Ramadan is coming and so on so anyway, this is the practical application of Muhammad Rasulullah. So Muhammad Rasulullah is a declaration that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, that Muhammad is the Rasul of Allah, and that is going to be manifested through this method of the Sahaba and the Tabi'is. If you do not follow that method, then you are not with the Rasul. You are with your own ideology, whatever it is. Yeah. So, and it's a complete package. It's not partial. That in the day you are a social worker, and at night you go to sleep, and you don't care even for waking up for Fajr. So, so there you can't beat the drums of Islam in the day if you're not knocking on the door of Allah at night. It doesn't work that way. You cannot do that. That is hypocrisy albeit a very silent hypocrisy, a very subtle hypocrisy. As the Prophet said that, I fear this subtle hypocrisy the most in my ummah. What is that? That is that people do things to please others besides Allah. So that will show only in your private life. You have to measure your public life according to your private life. In your private life, if you fail to meet the standards of ibadah, even if it's just two rakats, nothing, or making dhikr at night, then you are not really doing the work of Allah. You're not doing the work of Islam. And in previous eras, until about 50 years ago, everybody who was at all engaged with Islam, they did their nawafil. Not Never mind the sunnahs. We have half the ummah today following a bunch of idiots saying, you don't have to do the sunnah. Well, if the prophet did it, why can't you do it? 
It's not necessary. Then they go into ta'wil. They don't even believe in ta'wil in the first place. And they know it's not fard, it's not necessary. So this standard of ibadah is beyond anyone who's lazy. Yeah. So Islam requires that you're active, you're engaged, but you're engaged with Allah and you're engaged with people, both. You, can't, you cannot afford not to be engaged with Allah because that's your battery. That's where you get your spiritual energy from. And so, so this is a description of the Sahaba in the Torah, a description in the Injil, recorded in Revelation before the Quran, and so on. And then ultimately what will happen is that when people see your dedication and your resolve to remain Muslim, that will not please them. That's another warning for Muslims. And the conclusion of this surah, Surah Al-Fatah, is a promise of reward for all the Sahaba. So at the beginning of the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, uh, promises forgiveness for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So in the beginning, the fatah and the opening and the victory is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgiving everything for what the Prophet has done. Uh, and that is a huge fatah, that's a huge opening, that's a huge victory, other than the other uh, parts of the victory that we mentioned throughout the surah. At the end of the surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as a reward for the Prophet sallallahu promises forgiveness for the sahaba, those who are with him. So master and student are both forgiven, which is a clear victory. An open victory. And that is Allah's fadl on the Prophet and all the Sahaba. So Allah promises those who believe and do good deeds from amongst them, forgiveness, which is, as I said, the conclusion of Allah giving fatah and victory and opening to the Prophet So the Prophet's victory is the Sahaba's victory. The Prophet's success is the Sahaba's success. So you cannot be a successful ummah until everybody is successful. That's how you think as an ummah, as a civilization. So that is one reward. The second reward is the ajran azimah. Huge, huge reward, tremendous reward. One is the micro ajar, which they received in the form of ghanima during their battles and their conquests and their victories uh, throughout the land, throughout the earth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Muslims conquests and conquering abilities, and they, he gave them booty and ghanima uh, throughout their campaign as a reward for the Prophet because that's the fatah that's mentioned in the beginning. Then the ultimate reward is on the Day of Judgment in Jannah, 
which is another victory for the Prophet because that is his mission. What's his mission and goal? His mission and goal is to make sure every Muslim enters Jannah. So this is a confirmation of the success of the Prophet that both he and his companions, whoever they are, whether they're with him physically or whether they're with him spiritually after he passes, that they enter Jannah. That is the end of the story. So that is why here we see that the word fatah is comprehensive. It includes glory, victory, forgiveness for the Prophet It includes glory, victory, and forgiveness for the Sahaba. And that's how the surah concludes. And the message for all Muslims who read this surah is that you have to be patient and you need to know how to negotiate and you need to make sure that first and foremost you must have aman, security and peace in the place where you live. If you don't have security and peace, you will not spread Islam. You can't spread Islam at the time of war because you'll die and the person you're preaching to will also die if you're killing each other. So the Sulah Hudaybiyah is the greatest victory for the Prophet through his ingenious ability to negotiate and foresee what was coming in the next few years where the Sahaba then uh, they complied, they acquiesced, they, con- they conformed with the decision of the Prophet for which they were rewarded. Okay. So here we see that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants Islam to grow and to be successful. But in order for that to happen, the believers and those who are with the Prophet need to behave the way the Sahaba behaved. And that is the, our role model. They are the Sahaba. If we do that, inshallah, we'll be successful. Yeah, so the, the, this is now um, a bashara for the Prophet wasallam at Hudaybiyah, four years before he leaves the world. Four years before that, Allah is promising him and his Sahaba all of this, that this is the way. So now he's even more motivated hmm, to do what Allah wants him to do. That is why uh, when Aisha saw the Prophet increased his ibadah after this surah was revealed. Usually when you're given accolades hmm, and trophies, you kind of take it easy for a while. I've made it. I'm successful. You'll have a parade. You'll be given a lifetime award somewhere. And you take it easy. Bashara. This is my glad tidings. The Prophet he increases it better. So Aisha is saying that Allah has forgiven you. Why are you doing this? He said, Abdan Shakura. Can't I be a very grateful servant of Allah? So that's what people of Allah do. Likewise, the Sahaba, when they were given Bashara, they increased their ibadah so that they could reach the maqam Allah wants them to reach. They know the maqam is very, very high. I'm not capable of reaching that. But Allah is saying, and the Prophet is saying, I'm there, so I must now make sure the proof's in the pudding. So they increase their ibadah. They don't decrease their ibadah. In Ramadan, the idea of Ramadan is to increase your ibadah, not to decrease it. 
So which one is more correct in the spirit of Ramadan? Eight rakats or 20? There's only one answer. Because the other one doesn't stand a chance in the arena of ibadah. You're decreasing the ibadah of the ummah, which decreases your ability to find Laylatul Qadr. That's how you're depriving yourself and you're depriving the ummah. That's not fatah. Okay, that's a loss. Yeah. So getting the fiqh right is very important. Very important because it impacts you, impacts everybody else. So your fiqh must be correct, at least in principle, inshallah. But anyway, this is the conclusion of the surah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to recite the, the surah, to benefit from it, to understand it more, and to apply all the rules that we need to apply in order for us to please Allah and so on. On that note of getting the fiqh right, we have a session now in about ten minutes that we will be talking about zakat, the fiqh of zakat, not the philosophy of zakat. There's a philosophy of zakat also that we need to also engage in with sometime. We'll do that another time. But since in Ramadan, most people, they give their sadaqah and their zakat Although you can and you should give zakat outside of Ramadan also, so that you receive benefit of giving zakat outside of Ramadan as you receive benefit. So, you know, I'm not saying anything. You may give zakat in Ramadan, as most people do. And occasionally you may give some zakat outside of Ramadan also. Uh, anyway, that's just an idea that uh, the ulama, uh, they do suggest this in principle and so on. So zakat is a hukum of Allah, as you know, it's coupled with salat throughout uh, the Quran, where when uh, p- people ask Abu Bakr why he's fighting those people who are not giving zakat, zakat is just something you do annually, it's really not a big deal. So he said, no, it is a big deal. And he said the same thing, wherever Allah has mentioned salat, he's mentioned zakat invariably in many places uh, throughout the Quran. And so, so zakat is part and parcel of Islam, it's part and parcel of the Muslim's identity, uh, Muslim's psyche, Muslim's philosophy, Muslim's way of life. It's a civilizational value, it's an ibadah of the highest nature, and it gives you so much uh, reward uh, on the Day of Judgment, and so on. Other than the other idea of fulfilling the need of people, but there are other ways that Islam tells us to fulfill the need of the community. It's not just zakat. Zakat is one portion of our whole economic system. You can't devise a philosophy of economics based on zakat. That doesn't hold too much water. It's a portion. It's two and a half percent. And where is good two and a half percent going to fulfill all the needs of the ummah? doesn't make any mathematical sense either. It's a portion. It's a pillar of Islam, no doubt. And there's obviously the, the issue nowadays is that people think Islamic finance is Islamic economics, which is very far from the truth. Islamic finance also is just a portion of Islamic economics. So yes, zakat is there. It does support the community to a certain extent. And the idea in giving zakat was to make people... Now, so rich that they won't be receiving zakat, they'll be paying zakat. That's the ideal economic system. 
where you don't alleviate poverty, you eradicate it. Hmm? Yeah, so that you won't do simply by collecting all the zakat of the ummah. It's possible it might get you there 50%. It won't get you there 100%. So that's why you have sadaqah added on there. You have qarli hasana added on there. You have tijara and commerce. And these rules of uh, commercial transactions added into the economic system. Then you have the issue of qarli hasana. You have awqaf. And you have so many other departments in your Islamic economic system that will ensure that no one is eligible to receive zakat. That's the goal. Right? The goal is not to alleviate poverty, that you have 10% of people living under the poverty line. No, no, that's not enough. The goal is to make sure no one is eligible to receive zakat. And if you think of a system that does that, then fine. That is the Islamic system. Okay? And that happened, as we know, throughout the Muslim civilization history. That you say, in Mecca, in Medina... Umar radiallahu anhu uh, was the khalifa then, and Mu'adh, who was the governor in Yemen, he sent all the zakat he collected to Medina. So Umar asked him, well, what are you doing? He said, there's nobody here who's eligible to receive zakat. So you're the khalifa, you deal with it. <laughs> it's not my headache. When he, he wasn't greedy enough to take the zakat himself. Which is what most Politicians would do, they just pocket the money, and that's how you have wars. You, know? you have wars where people who have money want more money, so that what they do, they kill people who don't have money. Huh? Anyway, so then the next year, Umar took it. The next year, Mars did the same thing. So Umar said, You're not doing that again to me. <laughs> you keep it, it's your problem, you deal with it. Huh? So Umar would then leave all the zakat outside the masjid. And he would announce, anyone who wants this, take it. <laughs> I have nowhere to put it in the middle mile. There's no space in this state coffers for me to actually house this wealth. And people would b- walk by. There was no need. They didn't care for it. It was left in the streets. So that's the objective of zakat and Islamic economics. Zakat is one portion that where you must try to find a way where you enrich every single individual Muslim, not the system. So that's the difference. Where we cater for every single individual, whereas other uh, theories, they cater for the system more than the individual. So if you can find a way, a solution uh, collectively where you can say, we don't want any single Muslim to be in poverty. It's, it's not good. It's not good for the ummah. No. And this maintained itself for many, many centuries over millennium, where the majority of Muslims in Muslim countries were very well to do. There was only one class, economic class, and that was the well to do class in the Muslim civilization. We didn't have people who are poor. That's not who we are, that's not who we were. And many people from the West would move to Muslim countries because of the better living lifestyle and standards of living were much better in Muslim countries. We never traveled or emigrated from our countries to any other place because there was nothing there. 
Right? Why you go to a place where there's nothing there? Does it make any sense? Also? So this was the standard uh, by which we lived. And Zakat was obviously a very important uh, figure in this whole economic system. But when you look at some of the mind, can you imagine now Ibn Battuta today? So Ibn Battuta is a proof of the economic system. He traveled all the way from, you know, West Africa all the way to China, India, everywhere, God knows where he was. He didn't have any money. He didn't have American Express. He went everywhere and he lived on the hospitality of people who hosted him. And when he returned, he returned a very rich man. Meaning the hospitality, when the Quran says that Ibn Sabil, the traveler has a portion in the zakat. If he needs zakat money to travel, then he gets a portion of the zakat money. And that's how you do it. You travel the whole world. And you live on the hospitality and civilizational value again. That Muslim hospitality is formidable. There's nothing like it. So Muslims in all eras and in all places will host travelers, keep them as guests, which is part of their altruism, their sakhar, their, their accommodating, as the Quran says about the sahaba, very accommodating of each other. They, they, they host each other and they entertain guests. So Ibn Sabil, which is one of the categories of recipients of zakat, is very important because Allah wanted Muslims to travel. And that traveling is only possible if there's security in the land. You can't travel when there's war. Like when you go for hajj, man sabila. you have to be able to get to Mecca and maintain your family needs also at the same time before hajj is even fulled on you. So the passage for travel is very important for the Muslim economy and the goods from this place to that place. Some of you know this much more than I do. But that's how the nidham of Allah, system of Allah, works. So zakat should be given with the pride and honor and love that I want. This is Allah's money anyway. I can't claim it's my money. It's Allah's money in the first place. If Allah is saying, give me my money, but only two and a half percent, what you whining about? So, if Allah is giving you a billion dollars, then you must say, Allah has given me a billion dollars to take care of. So if he wants two and a half percent of my billion dollars, so be it. You should give him the whole billion. You shouldn't be that stingy and concerned about your future. That's the, the beauty of Islam. It's, it's, it's paradoxical. The Prophet and the Quran, they make all these paradoxical kind of statements that uh, that you're giving away a thousand dollars from your bank account and the Prophet is saying what you give in zakat and sadaqah doesn't reduce your assets. And the economists will say, what the heck is that? <laughs> you just lost a thousand dollars? And wahi and the Prophet is saying, you're not losing that money. So that's how Muslims used to think that we don't lose money when we distribute it for zakat, sadaqah, qawd hasana. It's not going away. It's not wasted. It has been invested in the akhirah. But that's just the akhirah. We're talking about the dunya. 
millions of people will attest that whenever they give sadaqah and whenever they give zakat, their wealth ultimately comes back to them. Tenfold, twentyfold, a thousandfold sometimes through Allah's fadl. That's just the nature of sadaqah. Sadaqah by design, zakat by design, increases your wealth because it's in the word zakat. And the Mufti Sahib might speak about this. So in the word zakat, there's a meaning of increase. It's there in the word itself. So everything in Islam is designed to benefit you and benefit others and so on. But uh, there's a lot of fiqh to it. MashaAllah, you have to study years and years before you get the fiqh right. So with that note, inshallah, we'll have a, a short workshop on the fiqh of zakat. Bismillah with the Mufti Hisham here. Jazakallah khair.